0: Hello everyone out there in podcast land. This is your host Karen Wickham coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and this is Stat. Shocking traumas and treatments. Oh, stop. Let's listen to a bit more. This is a great song. I know you like it. Here we go. (laughs) Thanks for indulging me, everyone. Now I'm ready to get on with the show. What a whirlwind couple of weeks it's been. I cannot believe I am so lucky to be doing this now. Living the dream. You guys have been absolutely amazing. I cannot believe the support that i've been getting i feel like the luckiest person in the world truth truth it's shout out time i want to give some extra thanks to people that took the time to leave me a review on itunes first of all i want to say thank you to c dawson 7995 and carol 221 tillytime, time and to scandicus I hope I said your name right. Thank you very much. Also to Rob and Slim. They have their own comedy podcast. Maybe you want to go check them out. They're pretty funny. And to Tony the Mechanic, which is Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. You know how much I love these two. Go check out their podcast. Next is Sarah Bear1991. This is Sarah Barton, the Salty Canadian. She's also a Canadian podcaster. Please check out her podcast at Salty Canadian. And to Madness Pod, who I have a sinking suspicion that it is the amazing people from the Minds of Madness. If that's you, thank you, Tyler and Beck. If you haven't heard of the Minds of Madness, which I find that very hard to believe, Please go check them out. They have an amazing true crime podcast that is just so well done. And they had me on last week. And that's not why I'm suggesting that you (laughs) listen. I was an honor to be on, but uh, it's a must listen to podcast. So the Minds of Madness. And last but not least, to Christy from the podcast Canadian True Crime for her support and Jewels of Wisdom. So thank you, Christy. And please go check her out as well, Canadian True Crime. And if you have the time, I'd appreciate it if maybe you could stop by iTunes and give me a review. It would mean a lot to me. So thank you again. And it's time to get started on the Walter Freeman Lobotomy Miniseries, Episode 4. Thank you. It isn't the ease and the pleasures of life that make you glow inside. It's the struggle and battle and dangerous strife that take you in fighting stride. To sit in the bleachers and yell for the team is sop for the man who is soft. But get in the game and soon it will seem that your spirits will soar, loft. The bigger the game, the greater the thrill. And the greatest of games is war. When man is the quarry, you're going to kill. And death adds up the score. That is a dark, ominous poem that was written by Walter Freeman. And I believe It sort of speaks of things to come, of the direction that he took in life, a path that he set out on his own. It just gives me, it gives me some chills. Welcome everyone to episode four. Last we left off with Walter Freeman working at a lab at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, doing some research on cadavers. And I felt it was a good idea to end there because it was a good stopping point because moving forward things start to get a lot more intense. I thought it was a good time to pick up where Walter started to work as a professor. He wanted to do lobotomies and he wasn't going to be able to get those done at St. Elizabeth's hospital. So he decided to go out and find other positions in hospitals so that he could have the access to patients and facilities that he would need to do so. He approached his family friend, surgeon general at the time, Admiral Stitt to get a position at the U S Naval medical school to work and study and teach neuropathology. He then got a associate professorship with no pay at Georgetown University. And of course he could afford to do that because he came from a wealthy family and as long as it gave him access to the things, that being people, unfortunately they were things to him that he wanted, he would work without pay. And then he also got a full professorship at George Washington University teaching neuropathology. So these three places gave him a combination of access to everything he needed to pursue his sick and twisted lobotomy experiments. A lot was happening in Walter's life in this period of time. As I've told you, he got the position at St. Elizabeth's. He discovered the lobotomy that he really wanted to do his experiments on and had every intention of doing. He got positions at hospitals so he could have access to those patients. He was about to find his partner, James Watts, a neurosurgeon, and he met Marjorie Franklin, his wife-to-be. want to tell you a little bit about Marjorie. She was an accomplished woman. She had a master's degree in economics. At 25 years old she became the assistant professor of economics at Bryn Mawr College. While doing that she earned a PhD in economics from Columbia University. She spoke four languages and she had moved to Washington in 1923 to work for the Tariff Commission specializing in French colonial tariffs. Unlike Freeman, Marjorie was more of a quiet woman. She was not a social climber, and she hated having her picture taken. So Walter had begun to date her, take her out on the town. He was a very manipulative man. He could be very charming. He dressed well, he came from money, and he wasn't a bad looking guy. So he really, uh, Marjorie became very smitten with him. Early on in their relationship, He started to demand that she change the way she dressed, change her hair, and just started to really impose his will on her. And this was all within a three month period that in doing this he had also proposed to her and she unfortunately agreed. Thinking back, this was in the 1920s. Things were much different then. I look at this guy And think of this woman and think Marjorie run for the hills woman get away from this monster but Like I said, he was a master manipulator and she probably had goo-goo eyes for him This is what he said of Marjorie When I made the decision to marry This is what I was thinking. She was not pretty, but I liked her mind and spirit He said that she was A suitable wife for an untamed man. What a beast. This guy is unbelievable. He says his wife is not pretty, that she's suitable, and he was an untamed man? Come on. What does he think? He was a lumberjack or something? Jeez. He also mentioned how he wooed her. I really monopolized Marjorie from the start since I had no other acquaintances in Washington." So he used her for his own needs, manipulated her, changed her, and got her to marry him. But there was one thing that sort of stood in the way, and that was that Marjorie was Catholic. And in order for Freeman to marry Marjorie, he had to get permission from the Cardinal first. And they had to take some prolonged lectures on Catholicism Marrying a Catholic and raising children. So he had to make a promise that the children would be raised Catholic. He agreed to that. And on their wedding night, after they consummated, he said, Oh, by the way, we're not raising our children Catholic. Just letting you know that. He had no intention of doing so. Imagine this woman on her wedding night going, Oh, M.G. I'm sure she didn't say that. So this is what he did for their honeymoon. He took her camping in November. That's right. They got married November 3rd, 1924. Now this is a woman. I'm not saying she was a snobby, rich woman, but this is a woman that, you know, was educated, was not a camper, was used to living inside and not roughing it. And he took her to the mountains on a camping trip, and she was cold, miserable, and unhappy the whole time. Like I said, it was November. Again, she must have been sitting in a damn tent, shaking in her bloomers, probably double-bloomered it. And she was wondering, what the hell have I gotten myself into? And what kind of jerk takes his wife on a camping trip? Unless they like camping together. Anyway I shall move forward. Marjorie got pregnant immediately and she had terrible morning sickness and Walter was constantly smoking a pipe and she asked him to stop smoking a pipe. So Walters was agreeable to that. He quit smoking a pipe and started smoking cigars instead. What a what a nice guy. A real sacrifice. So Their first child was born July 31st, 1925, and her name was Lorne. And Freeman insisted on having another baby as soon as possible, and Marjorie got pregnant right away. They moved to a bigger house. And on January 30th and 31st, 1927, she had twin boys that were seven pounds each. Those big boys. And they were named Walter, Junior Junior, Walter III, and Franklin. Now, Marjorie got really sick. She nearly bled to death after the delivery and she needed a blood transfusion. Now, Walter decided to hire a governess because she was too weak, but he saw this as a a sign of weakness in motherhood. This is what he quoted as saying, Marjorie was not particularly adept as a mother, being too easily upset by commotion. So, let's get this straight here, Wally. Having three children in less than two years, almost bleeding to death, proved that she was not a good mother. And why don't we even make her even more of an unfit mother? How about getting her pregnant with twins when her baby was only four months old? This guy. Yeah. So after being so sick after having these three uh, children... The family doctor was pretty pissed at Walter and said, leave Marjorie alone and allow her to have a break, allow her to have time to rest and her body to heal. But he didn't care. He wanted what he wanted. Soon after, their fourth child, Paul, was born on February 23rd, 1928. Now let's talk about what kind of father he was. What were his fatherly values? Knowing how he was brought up, and knowing what kind of sick and weird and twisted father he had. Here's a quote from Freeman. Fathers understand their children better than mothers, because men are less emotional in judging offspring. He stated that he could determine his child's personality at birth. He felt that fathers should be aggressive, child-rears. Rearers. Rearers. It's hard to say. You try it and not be pushed aside by women he said i like to get into the nursery with cap and gown and mask it is true but i want my child and i want him raw that's a little cannibalistic don't you think i want my child and i want him raw what does that mean i don't get it here's some more I poke and prod them and based on these reactions, I can tell what sort of baby it's going to be, what temperament it will have, and what to expect later. These poor children had a reckless sociopath of a father. They didn't have a chance to develop in their own natural way, not with a father who determined their character and constitution at birth and raised them based on these preconceived notions. This is a perfect case of nature versus nurture, and I think, full of irony. You are born a perfect little person with your whole life ahead of you. And unfortunately, you have a father who decides who you're going to be before you even get a chance to explore the world. And he raises you based on that. He tries to shape you. This man who believes in organic psychology, that all mental illness is caused by something physically wrong with the brain, screws up his kids brains by means of nurture child rearing, rearing rearing manipulation and brainwashing marjorie raised the children in a kind and gentle manner with a governess of course for help And There was a lot of kids they had six children in all with one miscarriage so with a governess and she would need one she raised all these these kids and of course his imposing views were always looming over the household this is what walter the said about his mom she taught me how to love somebody this was important because my father didn't have the capacity for a close emotional tie he was always distant so this gives you some insight on what this man was like as a father and a husband and it gets worse and we'll get to that later So with four very young children at home and a wife who was beaten down and exhausted by having a husband like Walter, he continued on with his career at an incredibly fast pace. But his presence was felt in his absence. So now he's got himself set up in a position that he wants to be in. Married, with kids, giving the appearance of being very settled and respectable having multiple professorships and a new surgery that he's experimenting with. The last thing he needed was to have a partner who would be a neurosurgeon to assist with the surgeries. I had mentioned before that when it comes to surgery, obviously it has to be a surgeon that that does the procedure. And Walter was a neurologist even though he did a good portion of the surgeries himself. So through acquaintances, he heard about neurosurgeon, young neurosurgeon by the name of James Watts. And from what he heard and from what he's seen, he he had met this man at a party. He had decided, this is who I want as a partner. He was quiet. He was well-mannered. He came from a prestigious family. And Walter saw him as a guy that he could really dominate and you know push around. So what he did was he showed up at Watts's house at seven o'clock in the morning. Watts had already gone to work as you know hospital hours and things are usually very they start things start very early and go on very late. But the only person that was home was his wife. So his wife comes to the door dressing gown and on and is curious as to who the heck is there and there's Walter Freeman standing there with his big shitting grin on his face and looking for James Watts. She, not very impressed, told him where she could find him. He found Watts and tried to convince him to come work with him. And Watts wasn't sure right away. So Walter went ahead and started whining and dining this man, throwing a party for him and really trying to win his favor. Watts being sort of the quiet guy that he was, Was really blown away, really wowed by all this. And I believe the icing on the cake was when Walter invited him to watch him in class, watch him teach. Watts was incredibly impressed by Walter. He had been manipulated and wooed and fawned over. And now watching him teach, he was blown away. And it was through this, that he really felt that he wanted to work with him. So through Watts' words, I'm gonna tell you what he saw and then go into some more detail about the shocking and terrible things that he did as a teacher. This shows early evidence of patient abuse and what he believed to be acceptable behavior as a physician and as a professor. Watts said, that uh, in the classroom, he was a great showman. Gosh, the students loved his lectures and demonstrations. For Walter, education, teaching was all about entertainment. He thought the only way he could teach was through performance. In my opinion, performance and entertainment rarely go hand in hand with teaching serious medicine. Now, A funny teacher, an easygoing teacher, is nice to have. But you can't have a circus buffoon up there teaching. And this was his brilliant philosophy on being a teacher. I wrote that what a teacher had to say did not have to be important. Indeed, not even have to be true. But it did have to be interesting. What the f- Come on! Really? You're teaching neuropathology, not mimeism. You're not teaching people to be mimes? It doesn't matter what you teach. It doesn't have to be important. You just gotta be. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, let's move forward here. So one of the things that he felt was really important to teach his students was something called the Jiffy Spinal Tap. It gives me the creeps, the chills, and it makes me enraged to think about this. So let's just talk a little bit about what that is. To do a Jiffy Spinal Tap, also known as a cistern puncture, its use is to draw cerebral spinal fluid from the body. Cerebral spinal fluid is an amazing investigative tool, an amazing way to diagnose some patients with different neurological disorders. CSF is a clear liquid that acts as a buffer for the nerves and brain and tissues of the brain and spinal cord. It also protects the brain and spinal cord, the nervous system, in those areas from infection. So it's a really great indicator if there is an infection or if there's something going wrong. It also is used for a whole variety of other tests. Now usually the cerebral spinal fluid is drawn by inserting a needle into the spine in between the vertebrae away from the spinal cord and withdrawing this clear and very precious liquid. I have done many spinal or lumbar punctures uh, or assisted with uh, lumbar punctures in my career. And I can tell you the standard of care in doing this now and then was highly sterile, you sterile glove and gown and mask. You, all your tools are sterilized. The doctor cleanses the area of the back with sterile solution to kill any bugs that may be on the skin. The needle is inserted in the lumbar area, in the sacral area. That's the furthest, lowest part of your back. Not quite at your tailbone, but that's the safest place to go because your nerves end around there. So the area that you're going into, there's actually no nerve endings in that area. And if they do have to go a bit higher... A very skilled doctor knows the safest place to go in to do this. So this is how it's done. And the fluid is handled with much care and hand delivered to the lab and very carefully marked. And then afterwards, the patient is cleansed thoroughly after the area is monitored to make sure that there is no leakage and they are to lie down for quite a while because even the tiniest bit a fluid taken from there can cause a massive headache. Usually it doesn't, but you have to be really careful. And that's really what I'm trying to, to get home. This is a serious thing. Now, Walter being Walter, he had to be showy and ridiculous. He had to push the envelope and limits on everything. He wanted the wow fa- factor. And that meant basically him being criminal, being a beast, being a monster, doing things that were dangerous to the patient. I'm just going to tell you. So a cistern puncture, or what he called the jiffy spinal tap, would involve having a patient sit backwards or straddle a chair backwards, place their chin to their chest, and expose the back of their neck. There would be no cleansing of the area because he referred to it as that sterile crap. He didn't believe in it. No glove, no gown, no mask for either one of them and he would take a needle and he would place it in the c-spine which is your cervical spine and he would place it just below or just around the brain stem. The brain stem is a part of the autonomic nervous system. It regulates your heartbeat, it tells your heart to beat, it tells your lungs to breathe and it controls consciousness you kind of need all of those. It does things that we don't do. It does them for us. So let's just put it this way. The tiniest little error, error can cause paralysis and death very quickly. It will can shut down your whole respiratory and cardiac centers. And at best, you're on a respirator for the rest of your life, which I don't believe they really had that in those days. So that meant death. So or death. So I think I hope that that kind of explains the kind of psychotic person that he was. He just was vindictive. And this is what he taught his students. Now that I have told you a bit about the types of things that he taught his students, I want to talk about how he felt that he needed to entertain his students to be the center of attention, to be absolutely adored. He was looking for the standing ovation. His lectures became so popular that they substituted for entertainment during the Great Depression. He invited his students to bring along dates to watch his lectures. So they did. Now this really upsets me for so many reasons again it goes back to his whole policy of it doesn't matter what i teach and it doesn't even have to be true it just has to be fabulous but what makes it worse what takes it one step further is that he would bring patients patients would will would willingly go to his lectures to help be examples for different diseases that he was explaining or that he was that he was teaching which i believe is incredibly generous to do so. And you think that a doctor, the doctor would be very appreciative of this. And one of his favorite things to do was to draw brain structures and physical structures on the chalkboard with both hands simultaneously. Do this whole ambidextrous shtick that he admitted to practicing every day to keep up the skill. He wasn't wasn't natural at that, of course. You know, it's smoke and mirrors. Wow, wow, that's awesome, yeah. Ridiculous. He stole that from another teacher. When he would see things that he thought people would love or got attention, he would steal the idea and use it for himself. One patient that he brought in had a disease called Cushing syndrome. Cushing syndrome is a terrible condition. It's when the body makes too much cortisol and you need cortisol to live it affects the adrenal glands. Now, cortisol affects every single tissue in the body. It allows people to respond to stressful situations such as illness or you know, fight or flight type situations. So when the production of this is affected, it, uh, this is what happens to your body. You get weight gain, high blood pressure. It affects your, your mind in terms of memory. You get They get irritable poor concentration, sometimes confusion and depression. Physically, they'll get a, a red, ruddy, uncomfortable face, and they get extra fat around their neck that causes what's referred to as a buffalo hump. They have extreme fatigue, risk for constant infections, and one thing is that they get is called hertuism, which is when you get excessive hair growth. Now, people would generally lose hair off their head but get excessive hair growth all over the body. And this is a disease or a syndrome that usually only affects women. So you can imagine having all of this happen to you, male or female, how upsetting would be to be so sick and have it affect you physically. And so he would bring, he brought one woman to his class. And back in those days, you really didn't show a lot of skin dresses, uh, boots that went high and we just didn't show your ankles. He would lift the skirt up of this woman and expose her legs from the knee down. Then he would lift up the pants of his or the legs of his pants and show his hairy legs and say, "See? Her legs are hairier than mine." How effing humiliating is that? How do you think this woman felt? She went there willingly to help in the name of education, and she was humiliated and embarrassed in front of the whole class. He just makes me sick. And this really is mild compared to some of the other things that he did. But horrible, horrible. So I'm going to tell you about another patient. And I think this is worse. But, you know, how how do you judge which is worse? It all depends on how the person is affected and feels affected. But, you know, I think this is worse because the patient was really, had no ability to defend herself. So he didn't just teach in a classroom, they would do clinical rounds in hospitals. And, you know, I think you've probably heard of that, maybe been in the hospital and seen how the doctors go room to room for teaching purposes and find a specific type of illness and the doctors would learn about it. Generally, you would give consent to that. In 1941, while leading a neurological clinic at Western State Hospital in Washington State, he did a demonstration for fellow physicians. He used a patient to demonstrate infantile behaviors of senile dementia. And he wrote a letter to his wife and explained how it went. I pulled from my hip pocket a nursing bottle full of warm milk and fed it to the greedy old lady. That's a practice that they'll not soon forget. She fumbled around with it and tried to get the whole bottle in her mouth just as our babies used to do and then I gave her the bowl of my pipe to suck on and she did the same thing. I'll say she was demented. Yeah. It just makes my heart ache with anger, rage, and sadness for this woman. And this son of a bitch abused her, humiliated her. She couldn't protect herself or speak up for herself. She couldn't tell him to F off and go away. She was vulnerable, completely vulnerable. If I would have walked in on this, I'm sure I would have lost my license because I probably would have been charged with assault. Yeah, I know, might not sound very professional, but I'm a human with a heart, and I'm sure most of you feel the same way. Here's a quote. As a teacher, Freeman aimed to retain the attention of his audience at all costs, for a drifting classroom could signify a shrinking audience of his public stature. Another one. Professor Spiller and Fraser had shown him great men seize the limelight without regard for human casualties of his actions. Yep, this is... this is... showing signs of his increasing psychopathy towards patients, victimizing them, victimizing his students to a certain degree, teaching them terrible things, and hopefully most of them saw straight through him. Now that you have an idea... Of what kind of psycho this guy is. I've told you about how he is as a father, as a husband, as a professor, and as a student. He's now found his partner. I'm gonna say partner in crime because Watts was absolutely no angel himself. He was nowhere near as bad as Walter, but James Watts was around and participated in many, many, many of these surgeries. He would eventually draw the line, but I think he crossed the line early and often. So he set a number for himself. He wanted 20 lobotomies done by the end of December 1936 so that he could present it to at a conference, do a lecture on it uh, at a conference of his peers, American Medical Association in front of psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists, and neurosurgeons. This was October. And I told you about his first patient. That was Alice Hood Hammett. Let's move on to his second patient, and her name was Emma Agar. She was a 59 year old bookkeeper with agitated depression. She was bedridden for six months, suffering from hallucinations, OCD, and inconsolable crying. While performing the prefrontal lobotomy, the surgical tool had broke off in her head and was in her brain. This happened halfway through the surgery, so he took it out, right, and closed her up? No, of course not. He took the broken tool out picked up another one, and carried on and finished the lobotomy. And Gachi survived, and but really she remained anxious and delusional, confused. Poor memory, amnesia, no spontaneity. Her brain was brain damaged. It affected the way she perceived all her mental unwellness. So she still had all of that but she just didn't seem to care. Her ability to care, or have initiative, or just continue on living any kind of life with pleasure, just it didn't happen. And that was her fate and outcome. The Next patient, the operation took place October 1936. His name was Linwood Roberts, a 39-year-old man. He had anxiety, migraines, OCD, he was suicidal. He couldn't work, he had no friends, he couldn't socialize, he had depression, he was very thin, he was dizzy, weak, and bedridden for 18 months. His mother took full care of him, and he would just lie in his bed with his hands on his chest waiting to die. So he agreed to a lobotomy. And after the lobotomy, it completely changed him. He became a talker, a constant chatterer. It was intolerable intolerable to the staff and the patients. He was very disruptive. It wasn't this man's fault, but if you can imagine, this man is running around talk, 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 a mile a minute and just really disrupting the whole area. And he was discharged. But really, all that happened here is that his brain was damaged and one mental illness was swapped out for another. He went from incredible depression and other things to being manic, he just couldn't stop. He did get a job as a janitor, but he didn't care about getting married or having children or improving his life in any way. He just, that was it. And now of course, Walter felt that this was a successful surgery because the guy got a job and that's it. That was his primary criteria For success was that if they could work again or clean the house again. Then he was like, really? Yeah, did a great job there. (sighs) Everything was just so skewed with him. Next patient. I don't have her name. Uh, She uh, was a female. She had OCD for over 30 years. An an extreme germaphobe with excessive hand washing. And she was absolutely crippled by it. She was discharged post-lobotomy without confusion. But... Her OCD was bad as ever, and she just continued to go on with those behaviors, but in a, with a zombie-like effect. Next patient was a 47-year-old woman. Again, I don't have her name, unfortunately. She was uh, suicidal with depression and had possible brain damage from a prior suicide attempt by gas inhalation. For all intents and purposes, it pointed to the direction that she did have brain damage. So he didn't believe in doing any real medical histories or uh, physicals on a patient. And in this case, it would have been crucial. having an ex- Now having a brain injury, likely, he she really did have to have a proper workup. And as mentioned before, he felt that doing those types of examens, exams was veterinary medicine. As it turned out, the operation was a travesty. It was butchery. Several blood vessels were severed, causing excessive blood loss. And she had severe, severe brain damage and was institutionalized for the rest of her life with seizures, bladder incontinence, high anxiety, confusion, forgetfulness, couldn't concentrate, and she had no driver motivation. The last person I'm going to talk about right now is Mildred Sperlin, a 32-year-old with schizophrenia. His description of her was this, grossly obese, untidy, mannerless, dull eyes and voice, and a greedy hoarder. This, This guy just didn't like women, even though women were most of his patients. And he was just horrible to To them and spoke of them and viewed them horribly. It just makes me so upset. Anyway, is it, it was pretty well known that many things, most things, did not help schizophrenia. But you know, it didn't matter to him. He did the sur- surgeries anyway. And post surgery, she got worse. Hallucinations continued as bad as before. She couldn't work, and she was institutionalized for the rest of her life. But not only that, it's like she was punished for that, because he treated her like a guinea pig. He carried on with all these other barbaric treatments that were pretty much being phased out by then. He continued to treat her with insulin therapy, other types of shock therapy. It was awful, absolutely awful. As I've spoken earlier, Walter wanted to have 20 lobotomies to present to this conference, and he only had six done. But that was enough to have most, the majority of the doctors and audience in an uproar. They were disgusted by this. They could not justify, they could not understand neurosurgeons, neurologists, psychiatrists alike, why they would want to destroy healthy tissue to correct something that was likely not biological. They, they were dead against it, except for one person. And throughout studying this period of time, throughout studying Walter Freeman and this whole area, there were opportunities, there were windows where lobotomy could have just fizzled out and gone away, but it didn't. And I think this is a case where that could have happened because everybody and anybody in the psychiatric neurology world would have really pushed this out the door to continue on. There was one jackass there by the name of Spafford Ackerley. He was a neurosurgeon from Kentucky. And he called what Walter Freeman was doing therapeutic courage, heroic medicine, that he was willing to take the challenge. He had the guts and the courage to murder and manipulate people in the name of science. What the bloody Hell, it scares me that people actually think that way. But what was the true icing on the cake was the thumbs up from Adolf Myers. Adolf Myers at the time and still goes down as one of the most famous and well-respected psychiatrists. I have absolutely no respect for this guy. I can't. I believe that Adolf Myers opened the floodgates for Freeman to recklessly perform his human medical experiments. A passport to torture and murder, and his words resonated with authority. It had an electrifying effect on everyone. It was a powerful and reckless vote of confidence on an untested experimental treatment. Also neurology and neurosurgery fields had little to do with psychiatry. Again, nature versus nurture. There was no real understanding, no real proof and basis that biology and structure had anything to do with mental illness, except for if they already had a traumatic brain injury or a tumor. And this is what Adolf Meyer said. The work should be in the hands of those who are willing and ready to heed necessary indications for such a responsible step, and to follow up scrupulously the experience with each case. The available facts are sufficient to justify the procedure in the hands of responsible persons, but it is important that the public should not be drawn into the unwarrantable expectations. At the hands of Dr. Freeman and Dr. Watts, I know these conditions will be lived up to. What a horror show. Two days after that conference, Watts and Freeman went on to perform the rest. Another 14 surgeries be done by January 1937. I think that Walter Freeman was well on his way to being a full-fledged mad scientist right now. So with the vote of confidence from Adolf Meyer, And most of the doctors at the conference quieting up because of it. Walter and Watts went on to perform the rest of their 20 surgeries. And many there were some deaths. Most patients were left institutionalized with no change. Something that really drove Freeman crazy was that he had to abide by the operating room availability he really felt that he should have first priority over everybody else and of course that was not a case it was an emergency surgery let's just put it this way so he didn't have the the operating room whatever he wanted to he had to book it and anything that inter- interfered with that time would put him into a tizzy one of these days Dr. Watts was feeling really unwell with a cold and he told Freeman that he wasn't going to operate. He said the the chances of getting someone sick when doing open brain surgery were very high. He didn't want to take that risk. He felt physically unwell to do a competent job. Walter had a fit, sent him home, and proceeded to do the surgery by himself. Not only is this surgery Highly dangerous. It requires at least two people to do it. And Freeman sent him home and did the surgery on his own. One of the surgeons, Dr. Daniel Barton, witnessed Freeman operating, and he reported him to the medical director of the hospital. So he got fired, right? No. He lost his license. No. He lost his hospital privileges? Of course not. He got a slap on the wrist. He was told that he was not to perform surgery naughty naughty Walter can't perform surgery and he's said why not I'm as good as anybody else and they said tell you what Walter go back to medical school do four years of medicine become a surgeon and then you can come back and you can perform surgery on patients and have surgical privileges and Walter said absolutely not it's just gonna waste my time especially when I'm good enough And I'm good as anybody else. And as it went, he managed to do, or he ended up doing more than half of those prefrontal lobotomies. Anyway, there was a case where there was a terribly botched surgery and one of the patients sued him for $2,500. Freeman always settled out of court because he didn't want a paper trail of, of anything. He didn't want to have to go through the courts for malpractice. He he wanted to always come out smelling like roses, so he always did the out-of-court settlement, and this was his feeling towards it. But such things are more or less expected in a free country like ours. So Freeman knew that he pretty much was going to botch surgeries and that he could pay people off because people were greedy. Not because he did anything wrong. No, not at all. I'm going to move on to the next and last part of this podcast that I think is very sensitive. I think that this podcast subject matter is sensitive to begin with, but I find this very disturbing so I'm just going to give a little bit of a warning ahead of time that this is some pretty scary and graphic stuff I'm going to talk about here. And I don't usually go for being graphic, I don't think it's necessary for most of the time. But I really, I really think it's necessary to include this as part of the podcast. So just letting you know, okay? If you want, fast forward or just make sure that there's no kids in the room. But I'm sure that's not the case either. Okay, here we go. I get a little emotional when I talk about this. Okay, Freeman and Watts wanted to gauge the amount of damage that their cuts into the brain made during surgery, preferably while the lobotomy was in progress. In 1939, they began performing surgeries under local anesthetic. That meant the patient would be fully awake. The only medication that they would receive was Novocaine that would be injected into the skin of their, of their skull, of their head. So the only thing that would be frozen would be the skin on their head after they were shaved. So the patient was going to feel the whole thing. And i I'll tell you the freezing wouldn't do a trick. It would for the initial cuts, but not for the drilling into the brain. They hope to have conversations with patients during the operation to gauge exactly when their cuts caused enough, but not too much damage. Enough, but not too much. When awake, the patients obviously felt an incredible amount of fear and anxiety. If this wasn't bad enough, Freeman, the sadistic bastard he was, would have the patients recite the Lord's Prayer. So these people would think, in essence, that they were giving their own last rites. It would scare the hell out of them when they would do that. He thought it was kind of funny. So picture this. They are told that they're getting brain surgery, fully conscious. So they are terrified on top of all their other mental unwellnesses that they are suffering. They were told that it would be relatively painless. A drill going through your skull and its tissues would in no way be painless. In fact, it would be excruciating. Fully awake, they watch themselves being strapped down and shaved and covered with sterile draping. During the surgery, they would hear the rattling of instruments, the noise of suctioning, and the sparks of the electrocautery machine. And sometimes they would get so scared that they would need to be put asleep. And I would think, why? Why were they ever kept awake? But Walter had a theory that the pain and the horror would distract them from the pain and the horror. He just loved this. This makes me sick. And that the shock of feeling and hearing the sounds and the holes being drilled in their skulls would freak them out and they would scream over top of the noise. They were being fully and absolutely tortured. So they would do one cut and two cuts and three cuts through the nerves and the tissues in the brain. And it was around the fourth cut that they would notice changes in the patient's demeanor as their brain was getting more and more damaged. Their tension would diminish and Freeman was written as saying, sometimes the replies indicated lack of self-consciousness, even to the point of being witty. Freeman found this particularly funny when he asked a patient, what's going through your mind? And the patient paused and said, a knife. I don't find that funny at all. He pushed the limit with each conscious lobotomy, more cuts, deeper cuts, more aggressive, cutting in different areas. And he would ask disturbing questions. This is pure horror. This man was as bad as any war criminal. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive in any way, but he was a monster and I don't say that lightly. So please forgive me and understand where I'm coming from when I say that. He did this to 66 patients. I'm going to read you some transcripts. These were taken while the patients were being operated on and conscious. I'm warning you, this is pretty scary stuff. You can actually hear, through their words, their minds being destroyed as they are cutting them and asking them questions. Here's one transcript. Freeman. Who am I? Patient. Dr. Walter Kaufman. Freeman. What about the relative who was troubling you? The patient. He was after me. Freeman. Are you happy? The patient. Yes. Freeman. What is a widow? The patient. She is related to a man and he went with another woman and he picked up the other woman and that is all. Freeman. What's the difference between a dwarf and a child? The patient. I wouldn't hurt a dwarf but I would hurt a child. Another case after cuts were made on the left side of the frontal lobe. Freeman to the patient. Do you feel any difference? The patient. I feel that there's a book on my face. They worked on the left side. There was a drawing when they put the knife in. Freeman. Later during the operation. Does your conscious hurt? Patient. I don't know where it is. It was down by my heart, but I can't feel it at all. That just makes me feel physically sick. We're hearing a patient say that they can't feel their conscious, that it was by their heart, and then they can't find it now. This is where I'm going to end this podcast because I don't think that there's any more that I can say. Coming up next episode, we're going to delve into Saint Elizabeth 7 years later after Dr. William White had died and that Freeman was able to proceed with his lobotomies. So we're going to talk about more about that time and the invention of the transorbital lobotomy so please join me next week where we will continue on with this mini-series and follow walter freeman down his path of death and destruction into the depths of madness thank you for joining me but wait a minute don't go anywhere yet because it's that time of the day for The Suture Room! Welcome everybody to The Suture Room! Come on in and join me in the Suture Room to relax get on the stretcher put your feet up I've got a comfy pillow and a warm blanket and a big glass of ginger ale this time let's dim the lights And I'll tuck you in all nice. And I've got a story. A wild and wacky and weird story. But this time, I've decided to go way back. Before I was an ER nurse. I'm going to go back to when I was in nursing school. Because this story has to be told. It's one of the craziest and I think funniest things that I've experienced in my life. Okay, are you ready? I surely am. When I was in nursing school, there was a fellow student who wasn't very bright. We all, you know, there's always one that gets in somehow. She was downright scary, actually. I don't know how she got into school. What's more frightening is that she graduated. I was doing a rotation on a rehab floor and she was on the same rotation as me. One of the patients was thought to have worms or parasites. We were asked to try and attain a stool sample so we could send it off to lab. Now, a stool sample is really a poo sample. And they're not always easy to get, especially if the patient is not able to do it themselves because maybe they have dementia or they're too unwell or they're unconscious or it's hard to get them on a bedpan or you know, there's many different reasons why they could have diarrhea it's not always easy to, to get a stool sample and it's never fun it's never anything I really ever got over but it's part of the job this patient was non-compliant she didn't really work with us so we were working a night shift and the student nurse, I'm going to call her Linda. Linda was discussing how she was very frustrated about not being able to get this tool sample. And Linda asked how she was going to be able to find out if the patient had worms. So I was in a bit of a bugger, kind of joking mood. I said, you need to get a piece of cheese and place it beside the patient's anus and watch it with a flashlight and wait worms love cheese so eventually the worm will come out to eat the cheese because worms love cheese and when the worm comes out you can grab it with your fingers and pull it out gently be careful because you don't want it to crawl back in and you don't want it to break in half so after i said that we all had a little giggle time went by and we realized that we hadn't seen Linda in a while. And I said, oh no, oh no, you don't think that she's in the room with the patient with worms. No, Sure enough, she was. She was crouched over the patient with a flashlight trained on her patient's anus with a piece of cheese on the patient's butt cheek, waiting for the worm to make an appearance. <laughs> I was mortified and it took a lot of convincing to get her out of the room and stop what she was doing. And I told her that we were only joking. And she said, But I could have sworn I saw the head of the worm poking out. To this day, that comment gives me shivers. Anyway, that's it for the suture room today. Thank you for joining me, and I cannot wait till next week. Before I end this though, I want to give you some of my social media information, and to be honest, I haven't really done it before because I don't know how to really end things. I have difficulty with it. As you can see, I'm still going on and on here. So I've decided to put together a little something that I hope will make this process easier and yeah, get the information to you. So. Here we go. Hey everybody, I got a little story that I want to tell you. It's about my social media information. I've had a problem and in my show, telling you about my social info. My tongue gets tied and I lose the flow. My Twitter tag has an underscore, which pisses me off to the core capital S-T to the T-A-T STAT underscore TAILS I hope you got that STAT underscore TAILS Gotta move forward and talk about Facebook It's another one that name is far too long but I know you cool cats out there can get it Facebook group is Stat, shocking traumas and treatments. Go check it out, hang out, and discuss whatever comes to mind. That's right. You're all welcome. Chicka, chicka, chicka. Ah. Uh. Uh. As for my website, it's a work in progress, but pretty soon it'll be real gorgeous. Stattails.ca. S T A T A L E S. Come check me out there too. Now there's one more place and that's the iTunes. If you take the time, it'll make me swoon. Help me out and rate my show. Tell me if I'm awesome or if I blow, 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 blow. That's it all. Thank you for joining me. And remember to stay groovy.